Welcome to Insights Now, a series of conversations designed to shine a light of clarity on the complex world of investing. In our third season, we'll explore investing in a post-pandemic world. After a year and a half of COVID-19 dominating nearly every investment conversation, vaccine rollouts are now well underway and the global economy is recovering at a much faster pace than following past recessions. But as we emerge from the pandemic bunker, the financial landscape looks very different from when we went in. In this season, we take a wide-angle lens to the investment environment to discuss economic trends and long-term themes in markets and how COVID-19 has shaped them. Over the course of a dozen episodes, we'll speak with experts on a variety of topics in an attempt to provide some insight on investing for a post-pandemic world. U.S. equities have dominated capital market returns for the last decade, but higher inflation and structural headwinds for growth at home may mean that the post-pandemic world has a different set of winners and losers. Europe in particular may be a source of secular and cyclical growth as we look beyond the pandemic. Even as the strife from Brexit has faded over the past two years, the onslaught of the pandemic has paved the way for a degree of European unity not seen in decades. The EU Recovery Fund may be just the accelerant to growth in Europe that investors have been waiting for. Still, European stocks are trading at some of their cheapest levels relative to the United States in history, and people have hailed Europe as an investment opportunity for many years. So is this time really any different? To talk about our outlook and to address some of the pressing questions on investing in Europe, I'm very glad to be joined today by Karen Ward. Karen is Chief European Strategist at JP Morgan Asset Management. Thank you for joining us in Insights Now. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. So let's start with the pandemic. Most European countries have actually done a pretty impressive job in vaccinating their populations, and this has allowed life to return largely to normal in most parts of Europe. However, there has been an unfortunate new surge in COVID cases. Do you think that we'll ever get to a point where we're actually talking about a post-pandemic Europe? Uh, I fear we will get a po- to a point where we're talking about a post-pandemic anywhere. It's really about how we learn to live with COVID. Um, I think, as you say, at the moment we are seeing a new surge in cases. There's quite a big variation in terms of vaccination rates. We are having an issue in that in some countries there is a degree of reluctance. So Austria may have made your headlines, albeit a very small country, but they have actually gone down into a lockdown. They are one of the lower levels of vaccination. The other thing that seems to be going on is restrictions were imposed at some level through the course of the summer and were taken off reasonably late. So there's a lower level of herd immunity as well. So what's happening in some of the region is we haven't severed that link between infections and hospitalizations. That, as we know, is the critical piece of the puzzle for living with COVID. This thing is going to keep circulating. It's about keeping the pressure off the health systems um, in order to keep the economy going. Um, and therefore, that's that, that's the issue that we have at the moment for those countries that have that low vaccination rate. But governments are responding. Uh, and in fact, in Austria, they're making vaccinations mandatory from February the 1st. I think now Austria have taken that step. You'll see others follow suit. So I see this as a temporary blip for Europe. And I also think I've really learned over the last 18 months that when we do see these new waves in terms of how we interpret the effect of that on the economy, demand is clearly delayed. It is not destroyed. So I see this as a very temporary setback to the recovery and it will really gather steam once again as we move sort of beyond these winter months. So, Karen, um, thinking about uh, how the government has responded, when the pandemic hit, the European Union intervened to provide immediate support with some powerful and relatively extraordinary measures. 
Can you talk a little bit about how that support differed from the, the United States? Yeah, it's been fascinating, actually, to watch how policymakers have approached the same problem with different tools. Um, I I think two things are clear. One is that uh, the US policy, the the government stimulus, was of a much greater magnitude. So whereas I think European policymakers were quite focused on filling the economic hole left by COVID, it was quite clear in the US that hole was filled and then some, it was overtopped up. Um, But actually, I think although that really supported activity in the US more than Europe in the depths of the weakness, I think as we're coming out of it, that more targeted and slightly smaller approach actually stands us in good stead. So let me just give you an example to make this point more clear, which is how the different regions tackled supporting their labor market. Um, In the US, of course, you had the enhanced unemployment insurance, that generous top up to the unemployment insurance for those that lost their job, which really cushioned, as we know, those incomes. In Europe, the approach was to stop people losing their job and instead subsidize employers um, to pay their wages effectively. So that employment contract was maintained. The income those individuals received wasn't as high, but nevertheless, their relationship with their employer was maintained. The reason I think actually, certainly as we look today, that may turn out to be a more sustainable policy is that we aren't having the problems that you're seeing in the US of now having to try and tempt people back to work. It's become it's it's more seamless. You know, that relationship between employee and employer was maintained. So they're just reopening and going back into their into their role. So actually, in terms of getting the economy operating at full capacity again, I'd say that the European approach, particularly to tackling the labour market, looks to be um, working better in in getting us quickly back to normal operational capacity. So uh, investors, I think, think that European policymakers are a little bit skittish about using fiscal policy, largely because of the scars from the sovereign debt crisis. Has this been a permanent change in mindset that we've seen over the course of this pandemic, or do you think Europe's going to return to austerity? I don't think Europe is going to return to austerity. And I think this is a really sea change in attitude amongst policymakers that um, actually is happening globally, but is really significant for Europe. I really think in terms of how investors view what's happening in Europe, they really shouldn't use the last cycle as a template. Because as you say, Europe lurched from the great financial crisis into its sovereign crisis, and then a multi-year period of extremely painful austerity. Um, Now what's happened in the pandemic is I think governments have lost their fear of debt. They've seen actually that they can finance phenomenal deficits at very low interest rates, and they've, they've all just relaxed about levels of government debt. There's also been something that's happened, which is Um, actually a major improvement, a major structural improvement in the European institutional architecture, which is they've created this thing called the European Recovery Fund. Now, what that is, is it's it's a pooling of resource. It's a fiscal union. Um, And that was something that they never quite got to before the pandemic. They always knew that that's where they would have to go eventually. Um, the sovereign crisis really did expose that that was the big flaw of the single currency. You can't have a monetary union without a fiscal union. But politically, it was just a little bit difficult to persuade 
northern European taxpayers that they should give their money to individuals in the south. But the pandemic, I think, has brought, uh, brought about this sense of collective and sometimes needing to transfer to other regions. So this recovery fund, this pot of money that they've established um, is, is significant. It's a significant 750 billion euros is, is a significant amount of money. It's particularly significant for the countries that are going to be the biggest beneficiaries, the biggest receivers. So Italy, for example, the fourth uh, largest economy um, is going to get 5% of GDP. You know, that's that's really big. Spain, similarly, it's even bigger. It's 8% of GDP. So I do think uh, that they've overcome this aversion to supporting their economy. Um, and, and therefore, we will see certainly, you know, not turning back to austerity, much more supportive policy. And I think we're going to be really surprised by actually how that invigorates growth in the region. I think we underestimate the role that austerity played in the weakness in Europe in the last decade, where it was really punitive for many years. So, uh, just pivoting, to, you know, from from some you know collective responsibility to uh, perhaps the opposite direction, uh, the pandemic hit just as Brexit was being finalized, uh, and you know, obviously, the pandemic has dominated news ever since. But two years after Brexit actually took place. Has it been as bad as people feared? It's rather hard to assess, David, which economists are terribly frustrated by, of course, because we like to be able to decompose everything. But I would say it's akin to being hit by a tornado and a hurricane at the same time, and then trying to uh, assess which did what bits of damage when you look at the house that's left. Um, It's very hard to know. And the other thing is there were when the final deal was struck, which of course was at the midnight hour, there were so many transitional arrangements that were put in place in order to uh, smooth the process of exit. And many of those are still in place. I think the whole problem with Brexit was the UK and the EU supply chains, their economies were so intertwined that that uh, severing, that disentangling the two was just extremely difficult. So what they did was just put in place lots of things to just to try and smooth that process, basically saying, don't worry about that for a year, worry about that in 2022. So so we're still going through the process. Uh, I've always felt that it would be a long-term impact on the UK. Um, It wouldn't mean that the UK would never grow again. Um, I didn't think sort of large hits, permanent hits to GDP was realistic. I think the UK is quite a dynamic economy, would forge new trade links. But I, I certainly think it's it's really, as I say, adding to some of the problems that we're seeing from the pandemic, which are largely in the supply chain. You know, getting goods across borders efficiently at low prices is a problem for all of us at the moment. Um, and Brexit really has just added to those problems for the UK because we have, you know, very different custom systems now that businesses are dealing with. So you certainly hear from businesses that it's made their life even more difficult. I think the other area where it's very clear, though, that it's had an impact is on migration. Um, And the UK is suffering, as is the US, of course, but but I think even more acutely in the UK, suffering from some um, very large labour shortages. In fact, businesses are reporting that they're having problems um, uh, filling orders 
um, of the same magnitude that they experienced in the 70s when there was actually mass strikes. So, so this labor shortage, migration and the EU workers who, who used to, uh, economists have this expression, a perfectly elastic um, pool of labor in that whenever a job came up, they could reach out to someone in Europe to fill that position. We don't have that now. And we are very much seeing that impact, the tightness of the labor market, putting upward pressure on wages. The government hopes that it's going to lead to higher productivity and all will be well, but we'll see whether it's quite that smooth. Turning back to the continent, there have been other political changes in Europe also, of course, and we are nearing the end of Angela Merkel's uh, era in German politics. What does the German political system now look like uh, after the last election? Well, I would say the whole political system is shifting from the centre-right to the centre-left. And Germany and the recent German elections is just one other example of that. The CDU, Merkel's party, which is centre-right, suffered very badly in the election. Um, and a coalition is now being formed around the SPD, which is the centre-left. It looks like the new chancellor will be a gentleman called Olaf Scholz. Um, I would say for investors, it's, it's broadly continuity, um, no major change in mindset or approach, maybe slightly looser fiscal policy, but I don't think it's anything that will particularly keep investors up at night. And Italy seems to be enjoying an unusual period of political stability. Um, how long do you think this can last? Indeed, Super Mario, as he was known. Uh, so Mario Draghi was, of course, president of the European Central Bank for quite some time and had a very, I think people would argue, successful term um, as leader of the Central Bank. He, over, he's, he, he ended the sovereign crisis with his whatever-it-takes approach. So there's much excitement when he took the helm in Italy. You know, he wasn't elected, of course. What happens is there was an inconclusive election and because of that and the pandemic hitting and then needing a solution very quickly, he was appointed by the president um, on, uh, with the approval of all of the other political parties. So he was sort of a caretaker prime minister, if you like. Now, the, the other parties are starting to nip at the heels and say, well, actually, we now would like an election. Um, but I think at the moment, uh, because of this recovery fund that I spoke to earlier, it's such a huge amount of money for Italy. Getting that money into the country and getting a plan and getting it spent is absolutely a priority. And because of that, we suspect that Super Mario will stay in his position. Um, and, and, and Italy really is, is transformed at the moment. It's seeing a new vigor and a new dynamic. Um, in some ways that, that we haven't seen for over a decade. So we do expect him to, to stay in seat for at least the next six to 12 months. And who knows, I think he will continue to play a very big role in Italian politics from here. I think he's got a taste for it and he looks like he's pretty good at it. So let, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about currencies. So we've had strong economic activity here in the United States relative to the rest of the world, and that certainly contributed to the dollar rising relative to the euro in 2021. But do you think the euro can stage a rebound next year? And then what are your views on sterling? Yes, well, I would say it's, it's a dollar centric view, actually, which I'm giving you here. I mean, I think structural forces over time should push the dollar down and the euro block currencies up. You know, the US has a whopping great trade deficit. The eurozone 
has a large trade surplus, you'd think the way the solution to that over time is, is a stronger euro. Um, and it is certainly something that we do expect to persist over the longer term. In the short term, it does seem to be the growth and interest rate deferential that's playing a larger role rather than relative trade positions. And the US, that has worked in the US's favour, of course, for quite some years. The US staged a stronger rebound. The Fed were able to normal, start normalising policy before the pandemic. And therefore, that yield pickup from the US and the attractiveness of US assets really, I think, saw global capital head towards the US and that put upward pressure on the dollar relative to the euro. I do think that will start to turn around. I think by the uh, certainly by the time this this time next year, we will see more clearly that European growth actually has some pretty good traction, that growth is broadening across the region. It's actually pretty strong by trend growth standards. I think we'll be talking about the ECB starting to raise interest rates, um, getting interest rates out of negative territory. And it's at that point I would expect uh, the euro to strengthen. So I certainly think it's coming. It's just a question of global investors getting more confidence that European growth is strong and sustainable, that European assets can stage, you know, a decent recovery or at least hold their own, and also that interest rates will start to rise as well. I think we're going to get there, but it's going to take us a few months just yet. And then on sterling? Sterling is um, facing this structural downward pressure because of Brexit. As I say, if, if because we have this trade impediment, one solution to that is a weaker currency. If all of our businesses here are having to pay higher taxes to bring 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 goods in, then one of the uh, sort of solutions that helps the economy through that process is a weaker currency. So I would expect um, more euro strength across the, against the dollar over the course of the next year than I would sterling, where I think Brexit just does um, does, does weigh. Okay. Uh, Turning to markets more broadly, the gap between U.S. and European valuations continues to grow. Why are European equity valuations so low? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? The, the gap. Uh, the, the, so European markets trade at a 23% discount to the U.S. And actually, that discount is larger than in the sovereign crisis, um, when there were all these questions about whether the Eurozone would actually break up. So so why is that? Well, I think we have to recognise that a decent proportion of that valuation gap is just due to the index composition, to the type of companies that are in the different um, benchmarks. So in the US, um, it, it's the mega, t- mega cap and particularly the mega cap tech, which are really commanding these striking PEs above 30 times. And, and that's that's a global phenomenon, actually. IT generally is commanding a 30 plus um, PE. Um, but, and, and the US just has many more of those companies in its index. So about 30% of the S&P is IT, about 9% um, is in MSCI Europe. So I think you can explain some of it by index composition, but it's not all. I think if you look at... Um, you know, for example, uh, one of the big um, electric vehicle manufacturers in the US, uh, which which has this, you know, extraordinary eye-watering valuation and compare that to um, perhaps the Europeans' main 
electric vehicle or certainly has the is spending the most R&D um, on electric vehicle production. When you look at the valuation premium between the two of those, it makes you think, well, how how does that make any sense? So I, I think there are certainly the sector composition is one part of the story. But I also think that there is, you know, European companies are on a like for like basis still um, relatively cheap. So there are certainly, certainly, I think, exciting things for investors to think about. Well, yes, but of course, we've been trying to, we've been talking about exciting things in Europe for, for, for a long time. Um, but of course, the question is, when will these valuation gaps close? So is there anything in particular that tells you investors should look at Europe right now? Well, I think if you're of the view, so these are the conditions, the ingredients I think you need for Europe um, to outperform the US, certainly in terms of uh, uh, in, in, in dollar terms. I, I think if you believe that um, global growth is going to strengthen, we're going to put the pandemic behind us, that there's a lot of pent up demand of consumer spending and of investment spending. So this recovery really has legs and is going to be, be strong into next year. If you think actually inflation's not going to completely go away, so we're going to stay with this pretty strong nominal growth environment and therefore central banks are globally are going to begin an exit strategy, are going to be able to start raising interest rates, um, then I think that is an environment where Europe looks really attractive. Um, and it is partly this switch in sectoral focus. You know, I think we have to recognise that these tech companies have had a very, very good pandemic. Um, not only have their earnings done spectacularly well as we've all created home offices, etc., but they've also really benefited from zero interest rates. On the other extreme, you've had certain sectors such as financials um, or industrials where you've had uh, very bad earnings, but on top of that, these zero interest rates are really hurting. Um, if that those foundations change and it starts to become a more financials and industrials positive backdrop and there are headwinds to tech because growth is broadening and interest rates are starting to rise then those are the conditions I think when Europe would outperform um, and I can see that happening over the course of the next year or two. I think there's one other thing I would just add in to the mix here which is that you know we've just finished COP26 we've heard from global leaders that it's really not going to be easy to reach a net zero or any of these targets about global warming. And we're going to need to absolutely revolutionize where we get our energy from and how we use our energy. Um, well, Europe is actually at the forefront of moving on this because the regulations have been more stringent um, in Europe for quite some time. So we've got some of the world leading companies in what I call climate tech. And I personally believe that consumer tech was the big thing you want, the big mega trend you wanted to be behind um, in the last cycle. I think it's climate tech for the coming cycle. And I think European, uh, there are many great companies uh, that reside in Europe. 75% of global offshore wind capacity, for example, is headquartered in Europe. So I think that's another very supportive factor. So... Yes, I mean, I think I think that does suggest there are a lot of exciting opportunities in Europe. And you did earlier you mentioned, you know, how rising interest rates might might help European equities. But of course, that has an impact on fixed income. 
Um, do you think European bonds are challenged as the Fed and the ECB move to gradually reduce their bond buying? Yes, I mean, certainly for government bonds, I think it's very hard to get excited about any uh, any any regional markets. But um, I think Europe perhaps uh, more than most, you know, we have 50% of the European aggregate bond market is negative yielding. Um, and, and the expectation is the ECB will start moving, but very, very slowly. The first hike is expected from the ECB um, in at the end of next year. They're not expected to get interest rates back into positive territory because, of course, the key policy rate at the moment is minus half a percent. They're not expected to get back into positive territory until 2027 by the market at the moment. So this negative yield, I think, is going to persist for quite some time. I think the market's a little too pessimistic, personally. I think actually the Fed, the ECB will get back to positive territory a little bit more quickly than that, but it is still going to take some time. Um, and therefore, European bonds will be challenged, certainly won't be giving us uh, a source of income over, over the next five to 10 years. We really have to look elsewhere. But of course, we should also recognize that that has significant implications on what's happening in global markets, because I'm pretty confident to say that um, the, the US, the, the US tenure, which I think has puzzled many over the last year, um, how that can't breach two when inflation is above six and the economy is very strong. Um, I think European yields, Japanese yields are playing a big part of that. So I think, yes, Europe is going to be a source of search for yield for quite some time and hold bond yields down and create us income problems uh, for quite some time. Um, so Turning back to sort of the bigger macro picture, the United States looks like it's going to run out of room to grow within the next year, not because of a lack of demand, but actually a lack of supply, and particularly a structural lack of supply in workers. Do you think that Europe has more room to grow than, than the United States in that regard? Well, it comes back to the point I made earlier about how um, I actually think that the policies that were enacted in the crisis um, are, are, are actually going to put Europe in a pretty good footing. And, and those policies are, are twofold. So one is this support for the labour market. So what we haven't seen in Europe is a fall in participation. I know in the US, you know, and, and David, we've had so many of these discussions about how the participation rate has fallen. And we just don't know whether those workers are going to come back. They, they may all come back. None of them may come back. And it's a big question as to whether the US, what happens to unemployment, what happens to inflation, what happens to growth. We just don't have that problem in Europe because that relationship was maintained. The participation rate is broadly stable. Unemployment has been broadly stable. So as economies reopen, um, there is that capacity. So, so yes, I think that that's, uh, that that's important. But this recovery fund also, again, I just want to emphasize what I think is the the importance of that for growth. You know, if, if, if Italy has been given 5% of GDP, and okay, it's going to be spread over multiple years, but let's say that's 1% of GDP, that doubles their potential growth rate. That would be more growth in one year than Italy has achieved over the last 10 years. So this infrastructure spending, um, these new programs, Build Back Better, what all these governments are calling these programs, are really significant for Europe. And I think we're going to be surprised how Europe regains a little bit of dynamism, a bit of vigor, a bit of nominal growth, uh, and certainly outperforms uh, what it did over the last cycle. So pulling all of this together, and thank you, these are, this is a fascinating discussion, but pulling it all together, 
A, where do you think the biggest opportunities are for investors in Europe? And B, what do you think the biggest challenges investors may face are? Yes, well, um, I mean, I think one of the key things I wanted to get across as well as, as we think about this is we've just got to be very careful with recency bias. You know, I can imagine sat in the States, many investors thinking, well, look, I've done perfectly well just sitting in US stocks. Um, why should I bother thinking about anything anywhere else? And that is absolutely true for the last cycle. The, the performance of uh, the US market was, was, you know, in dollar terms, twice that of Europe. And I, and I absolutely see that. I would just go back and look at the cycle before, however, just, just again to challenge our recency bias, because actually in the cycle before, in the 2000s, the combination of a stronger euro, strong economy, but a well, but the conditions for a well-performing composition of that stock market actually saw European stocks outperform the US again by a magnitude of about two times. So, so that that was one of the things I wanted to get across. If you do believe in this story that we are not going back to our pre-pandemic sluggishness, we're not going back to austerity. We're actually going back. Uh, we're going to a new, um, stronger nominal growth focused on spending on investments, spending on infrastructure, um, the global consumer, the, the tailwinds for the global consumer strong. Then I think Europe has some, some of the best global consumer brands um, in the world. I think some of the best industrial companies, which are really leading on climate tech that are, are well worth the look at. So I think, I think those are the biggest opportunities. And then finally, biggest challenges? Well, I think the biggest challenge would be that I've I've just totally got this whole story wrong. That, you know, if we were going back to, uh, to zero growth, austerity, if governments suddenly change their tune and start worrying about debt again, then, you know, government debt is high across across Europe. And if that were to be the case, then um, I think that would turn into a drag. Um, and, and if the if the you know China falters materially over the course of the last year, you know Europe has really done a great job of focusing its attention on the fast growing emerging world, which is great when they're doing really well, but it is problematic when they slow. Um, if China does actually have a more material material slowdown next year, then I think that would challenge Europe. But as as I say, those are tail risks to me. I think. Uh, the conditions for me are that we're going to see this recovery broaden, um, that there is momentum, pent up demand in both consumer spending, investment spending, and that governments have already set in place these multi-year spending plans. It's already baked in in Europe. And therefore, that, those are those are tail risks to me. It's uh, certainly not a central scenario. Well, listen, Karen, thank you so much for the, this optimistic view, which I think is very appropriate as we head into 2022. And again, thank you for joining us in Insights Now. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Please tune into our next episode, where I'll be joined by Mike Conrad, Head of Education Savings at J.P. Morgan Asset Management, for a discussion on the importance of investing for college and how the 529 plan may help families achieve these goals. Other than I invite you to download the JP Morgan Insights app for iPhone and iPad, which is another way to access this podcast and all of our timely insights on the markets and the economy at your fingertips. This content is intended for information only based on assumptions in current market conditions and are subject to change. No warranty of accuracy is given. This content does not contain sufficient information to support investment decisions. It is not to be construed as research, legal, regulatory, tax, accounting, or investment advice. Investments involve risks. 
Investors should seek professional advice or make an independent evaluation before investing. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate, including loss of capital. Past performance and yield are not indicative of current or future results. Forecasts and estimates may or may not come to pass.